Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So I wonder if you're one of those people who's into car bumper stickers. And you're probably really, you are or you aren't, right? It's one of those things. There's a car that I go past um, whenever I take the kids to school that's on uh, Blakeway Street, absolutely packed with bumper stickers. But then I think of certain friends, some of whom are in this room, who would never, ever, ever stick a bumper sticker on their car. Right, Andrew Dennis? <laughs> Maybe Rich Bunchu. <laughs> There's a few of you out there, right? You either are or you aren't. But bumper stickers can be pretty funny, right? I mean, you, you see them and you perhaps chuckle as you read them. And they were first introduced, though, to actually attract tourists to certain destinations. They would stick these stickers on people's cars when they went places and people would just come around and without even being asked, they would stick a sticker on their bumper. And then they got used to express political support. That really began in 1952 in the presidential election back then. And now you see them, they can be commercial, they can be religious, they can be secular, they can be to do with sports, or of course, they can be funny. Here are some of the funnier ones that I've encountered. First of all, this is for people who drive minivans like myself occasionally. It just says, I used to be cool, <laughs> right? <laughs> then there's the people who are fed up with tailgaters. Ever have that problem? It just says, watch out for the idiot behind me. Thirdly, for the ironic amongst us, I hate bumper stickers. That's yeah, pretty clever. Uh, this one's pretty personal for me. Don't even think about dating my daughter. Um, this one's just plain clever. What would Scooby do? I like that one. What would Scooby do? Uh, this is for the South Carolina drivers. I bet Jesus would have used his turn signals. No offense, but yes, offense. Uh, for the mathematicians, alcohol and calculus don't mix. Don't drink and derive. Uh, there you go. Uh, a warning for the parents among us. <laughs> Be nice to your kids. They'll choose your nursing home. I like that. Uh, this is funny too. Dyslexics are teeple poo. I like that one. And then, but finally, if today's sermon bumper sticker, if, it was a, if today's sermon was a bumper sticker, it would probably simply be this one. You've probably seen it. Gone fishing, catch you later. Right? Gone fishing, catch you later. See, today we're moving on in our series in Luke, and uh, we're actually spending this whole year, aren't we, looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're trying to figure out who this Jesus is to have a clear vision of him in 2020. And Luke's writing his Gospel primarily for Gentile Christians, so people who aren't Jews. He's writing for them as well for people who are Gentile Christians beyond Israel. So they're living scattered around the Mediterranean. And he wants to give them a really accurate account of what happened when Jesus walked on this earth. And he's a doctor, so he cares about the details. So there's one thing we know for certain is that he is helping us to have a faith that is well-founded based on facts, details, times, historic people. You can go back and check the names and the dates in this book, and you can figure out that actually these things happened at a particular time in a particular place. They're not made up. But then also what we're finding as we go through this series is that perhaps we don't know this Jesus as well as we thought that we did. Remember the context of our story. If you've been here, you know it's been 400 years since God's spoken. And then God speaks into his people. He speaks to a man called Zechariah. And yet it still takes 30 years until we really find out what's going on. And these are dark times for the people of Israel. They are people who are ruled. They're oppressed by Romans. 
And they're not happy. They're really hoping that God will send the Messiah he promised at least 700 years prior to come and to rescue them out of this dark place, to come save them, to save his people once again. And something new happens. This guy called John the Baptist, they wonder, could he be the one? He starts preaching in the wilderness and he starts baptizing people as well. And they wonder, maybe he's the one who's going to come save us. There's something pretty unique about him. But he says, no, it's not me. And he points to someone else, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points to Jesus, his cousin, who's come as well. Jesus is age 30. He's been baptized. He's um, gone off into the wilderness. He's been tested and tempted there as a preparation for his ministry. He goes out. He begins to heal people. He stands up in his hometown of Nazareth, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he declares his mission statement, which is he's come to help the hurting, the broken, the lost, to set captives free. And guess what happens? His people, his friends, the people he grew up with, they reject him and they try to kill him. They cannot possibly believe that this guy who grew up in their midst is going to be the Messiah. Well, the story moves on with some more healing and he casts out a demon. We saw that last week when Chris preached. And now we turn a page. And what happens is the beginning of the beginning has begun, all right? And the beginning carries on with calling now. He's starting to call people to come in and share this mission with him. He's got a specific group of people in mind that he wants to follow him for these three years, and he's raising them up um, to be a part of his mission. He wants them to partner with him. And his mission basically includes taking sinners, taking sinners, and he's going to transform these sinners into people that he can use for his kingdom's sake. And today we find him down by a lake catching fish if you will. He's down by a lake catching fish. So let's turn to our scripture reading for today, and we're going to look at Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We'll touch on the others too, but turn to the Gospel of Luke. You can find it on the back of the announcement sheet if you want to follow along. And the setting for our story is, of course, fishing. Fishing is going on. The first call happens by the sea, or what's called Lake Gennesaret. So it's just the, uh, the, the Greek way of saying Lake Kinnereth, which is another way of saying the Sea of Galilee or Lake Galilee, okay? It's named after a city that was on the lake itself, Kinnereth. So Lake Gennesaret. And what we see is this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the Lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So the fishermen would have been fishing during the night, so it's, it's probably morning time, and Jesus sees these boats. And in fact, he knows these fishermen. He's already encountered them in our story from just last week. And Jesus has a problem. There's large crowds gathering around him, and he wants them to be able to hear him. And Jesus knows his acoustics. He knows that if he gets out on the water and talks back towards the land, which makes kind of a natural amphitheater, if you've ever been to Galilee, you'll see that, he knows that his sound of his voice will carry over to them. So he asks one of his friends if he can borrow his boat. And he says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus knows his acoustics. And it's kind of appropriate that he's in a fishing boat, because what he's going to do is he's going to go fishing. But he's not going to be trying to catch the fish of the kind that we might think. He's going to try and catch some men right now. So here's the setting for our fishing, but what's the bait? How does Jesus fish? Well, verse 4, look at this. He says, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. 
he asks something fairly unusual. Remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how with Jesus, everything is intentional. He's doing this for a reason. He's casting out his hook and his bait, if you will. Now, imagine you're Simon Peter. You've been fishing all night long. You've come back. You've washed your nets. Okay, and then this guy who's a carpenter, not a fisherman, says, hey, by the way, I want you to go out again and throw your nets over the side of your boat. Now, you've seen him do some pretty special things, but you're probably thinking, I'm tired, Jesus. I know what I'm doing. I've been out all night. I've caught nothing. Now you, a carpenter, are trying to tell me how to fish. So you get the sense that as Simon speaks in verse 5, it's a little begrudging. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. And then he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. He does it, doesn't he? He actually responds. Simon has been hooked. He's taken the bait and he's responded to what Jesus is doing. It's funny, uh, some of the guys in one of my life groups have been reading through Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, which is this great classic devotional that I recommend. And Today's reading was really interesting because it really fit with our passage for today. Listen to what Chambers says. When God sends his inspiration, it comes to us with such miraculous power that we are able to arise from the dead and do the impossible. Our Lord said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. As soon as the man did so, his hand was healed. But he had to take the initiative. If we will take the initiative to overcome, we will find that we have the inspiration of God because he immediately gives us the power of life. Jesus has set out the hook with the bait. He's waiting to see if Simon Peter will take the initiative and respond in the affirmative. That's all he's doing. He's playing this game of of fishing for men. That's what he's doing. And look what happens. Simon takes the bait. He responds. And verse 6, And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come up and help them, and they came and they filled both boats, so they began to sink. There's this amazing catch, isn't there? An abundance of fish. It's this great reminder that God doesn't just scrimp on things. He doesn't just give you like a little bit. He gives you abundance when he's trying to pour out his blessing on you. And I wonder if Simon Peter thought about this at Pentecost. I wonder if he looked back as 3,000 people were coming to faith and thought, reminds me the first time. I followed his directives, and I caught an abundance of fish. And now here we are following his directives at Pentecost, and 3,000 people are choosing to follow Jesus. Well, how does he reel in the catch? Look at verses 8 through 10. It says this, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus has got the disciples' attention, and especially Simon Peter's. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. See, when we encounter Jesus Christ, when we encounter him face to face, we actually see who we really are. He's seen Jesus in all his power and his glory do this incredible miracle, and he realizes that even this carpenter, Even this carpenter, there's much more to him than just being a carpenter. This is a man who has power that he has not encountered before. And he's starting to put two and two together. And when we encounter Jesus, it's a bit like having a mirror held up to our faces. And you know, and you think that when you look into a mirror, you see yourself how you really are, right? 
But I think it's a bit like having one of those mirrors that you've ever been to the fairs and you see those mirrors where they're sort of wavy mirrors and you, or you might bulge out or you might look really stretched out or something. Suddenly, Peter's truly seeing himself for who he really is. He thought he was one way and yet he's actually another way. And so all he can do is get down on his knees and he doesn't feel worthy, does he? It reminds me also of the, the scene from Wayne's World. Have you ever watched Wayne's World? There's a great scene where the guys in Wayne's World meet Alice Cooper. And Alice Cooper says, hey, I want you guys to come and spend the day with me. And Garth and, and Wayne are just, oh, I said, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. They get down on their knees. It's Alice Cooper. We can't believe it. Simon Peter's having one of those moments. He's thinking, I am not worthy to even spend one second of one day with you, Jesus. Get away from me. Now, what Peter doesn't realize is that admitting our inability and our sin is actually the best and perhaps the first qualification for service in the kingdom of God. See, it leads us to dependence on God. People who can recognize that will know that they need God over and over again. Daryl Bock writes, humility is the elevator to spiritual greatness. Humility is the elevator to spiritual greatness. Look at the Apostle Paul. We had a reading, didn't we, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul, this great man of God, this man who helped convert the Gentiles around the Mediterranean. And he says this, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, you can imagine Paul's preaching to people, they're coming to faith. He might get a little bit proud of himself. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God says, my grace is is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is how God's love works. He uses even the flawed parts of our character to help draw us to him and then to help draw others to him as well as we go out to catch fish. Well, think about Isaiah. We had that story too, didn't we? Isaiah encounters the living God and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Again, we see how God's love works. See his love in action. We had a conversation a bit about this in one of my life groups this week. We were just talking a bit about how, how sometimes God, we, we feel like we, just, we have a lot of fear. We worry about listening to what God might direct us to do. And the thing that holds us back when we read his word or when we spend time in prayer is this fear that he might ask us to do something that perhaps we're not ready for. We might say, oh, Lord, I can't do that because of this. Or, Lord, we're worried that he might say, leave everything for me. We're worried that he might say something that, to ask us to do something that might be embarrassing for us, perhaps. 
But look at the response that Jesus gives Simon Peter in verse 9. He simply says this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. It's amazing how often this phrase actually occurs in Scripture. If you look it up in different versions, there's a different amount of times. But I'm guesstimating there's about 70 to 80 times in Scripture that you hear this phrase, Do not be afraid, often from the lips of Jesus, often from God the Father, and from others who are working with the Father as well. Jesus knows that fear or a feeling of being inadequate is often the main thing that holds us back. We were talking about this again, like I said, in my life group um, last week. And, and we have this fear, don't we, that holds us back because of these what-if questions. And yet to each of these questions, he replies, do not be afraid. And what we saw, and as we discussed in our life group, was none of us has been let down by God, even when he's asked us to do the most incredible things. Well, finally, in verse uh, 10, we see the call. Jesus is going to teach Simon Peter what he's just done. He's going to teach him himself. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Simon Peter is going to get to partner with Jesus in this mission that he has to go out to reach the broken and the lost and the hurting and those who are far away from him and to bring them into his kingdom. Well, last of all, when you're fishing, often with fishing, it's catch and release, isn't it? You can't keep the fish. Well, there's a release that happens at the end of our story. Jesus is going to release them one day, not yet. It's going to happen in a few years' time. But first of all, what we see in verse 11 is that these men have to let go of all that they know and they have to follow him. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, and they followed him. Now, does this mean that all followers of Jesus must leave everything? Do we have to leave everything behind, sell our homes, our possessions, leave our families in order to follow him? Well, Daryl Bock, again, has a helpful quote. He says this, the response of leaving everything, however, implies another question. Must all disciples leave their vocations to serve Jesus? How is the call to believers like and unlike this call to Peter? The answer to that question emerges in the history of the church. As the New Testament letters show, not everyone is called into full-time ministry. In fact, Paul kept right on working as a tent maker as he ministered. The important elements of the call to walk with Jesus takes on a priority so that we are prepared to be whatever or wherever God calls us to be. For some, like the healed Gerasene demoniac, it means staying home to testify to Jesus. For others, it means traveling with Jesus. For some, it may mean the mission field. For others, it may mean the mission field at the daily job or parachurch ministry. The mission is catching men. Sometimes one's work is the best place to find the fish, while the church is not. So no, we may not have to leave everything, but yes, we do have to give over everything to him. To say to him, Lord, all things come from you. Everything I have is yours. See, obedience requires sacrifice. It requires the giving of our whole lives, including all of our stuff, to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he tells him to come and die. But he doesn't ask us to do anything he isn't willing to do himself. As N.T. Wright puts it, when Jesus calls, he certainly does demand everything, but only because he's already given everything himself 
and has plans in store for us and the world that we would never have dreamed of. Jesus has already given everything by dying on the cross for you and me, paying for our sins, paying that ultimate price so that we might live. As we come to a close, I just want to point out three key characteristics of disciples, people who follow Jesus. What we see in Peter is that Peter is willing to go where Jesus leads. That's the first characteristic. He's willing to go where Jesus leads. Remember, he takes the hook, he takes the bait, and he does what he asks him to do. Then we see that he's humble. He recognizes who he is, and then we see that he's fully committed. He drops everything, and he follows Jesus. You know, at Holy Cross, we put it this way. We say that disciples are people who follow Jesus, they're formed by Jesus, and they fulfill the mission of Jesus. It takes willingness, humility, and commitment. These are the kind of people that Jesus is looking for, people who recognize their brokenness and their need for God, not the all-star, super-religious types who seem to have it all together, but those who are shocked by his incredible love for them, that he would love them even knowing who they really are. They're shocked by his grace and his mercy, not people who think they deserve what he's offering. If we're unwilling, too proud, or too non-committal, then we will be of no use in God's kingdom. But if we recognize who we truly are, then we can be used by him, used to reach our neighbors, used to reach our friends, our work colleagues, our school friends, whoever it might be, used to disciple others through our families, our life groups, or teaching and preaching, used to minister through prayer and hospitality, generous giving and service. This is his plan for our lives, to be on mission with him, catching people. But first, you have to have that Simon Peter moment. So if you encountered the real Jesus, recognizing your sinfulness and brokenness and coming down on your knees and just saying, Lord, I am not worthy, not worthy of your love and your grace and mercy. You come to that moment in your life where you've said that, you've let go of your pride, and then you've received his loving restoration And he says to you, do not be afraid. Next, if you heard his call, I will make you fishers of men. And then finally, have you chosen to follow him, leaving behind everything? See, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God can use you. In fact, he wants to use the weakest parts of you for his glory. The things that you would say would disqualify from you from being a leader or someone who serves him, he wants to use those very things for his purposes. He takes away our excuses, doesn't he? The things that we've hidden from everyone else, the things we're ashamed of and fearful of, maybe the doubts, maybe the depression we face, the anxieties we have, the addictions we struggle with, the pain that we feel. It's hard for us, isn't it, to do that, to let him use those things, but he will. The question is, are you willing to be used by him, to follow him, to be formed by him, and to fulfill his mission? Yes, you may be fearful and anxious, but he says, do not be afraid. And the response he's looking for is, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Would you repeat after me? Here I am, send me. Do it again. Here I am, send me. One more time. 
Here I am, send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you fish for people and the example it gives to us. We thank you most that you call people like us, broken people like myself, sinful people like myself, Lord Jesus. And you use us. And you don't just use what we think are the good parts of us. You use the stuff that we would call our weaknesses and our failings, the things that we think would disqualify us. Actually, these are the things that make us useful for your kingdom's sake. So Lord, would you come and where there is fear in this room, fear of truly following you, would you take that away? And would you help us to believe your words when you say, do not be afraid. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.